Good morning. The Lord be with you. Good morning. All right. I don't like the mic too close, but I guess I have to. All right. Uh, good morning. My name is Josh Prussell. I'm uh, going to be doing the Bible study today for Joe, who's uh, in the Holy Land. Apparently, they. Uh, just landed. Yeah, I would say they, they should I just, just landed. Oh, there we go. Just there. Good deal. All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, let's go ahead and open with a prayer. Uh, dear Lord, we pray that you will guide our our minds and hearts as we consider this challenging passage and how it applies to our relationship with you. As we open your Word, may the Holy Spirit guide us to truth and draw us close to you. Amen. Amen. All right. So. Today's uh, letter, we're doing, still doing the letters from Revelation to the seven churches. Today's letter is the fifth letter. It's for Sardis. Who knows where Sardis is? Uh, me neither, um, because it doesn't exist anymore. It's, it's not there. But uh, Sardis is uh, it's in Turkey, obviously, it's, uh, or was in Turkey. Uh, it's near the modern village of Sart. It's not really much of a city around there anymore. It's kind of a rural area, it looks like. But uh, ancient Sardis uh, was first a fortress on a ridge uh, at the base of Mount Timulus. Um, that was kind of like the first city was this fortress up on a ridge. And then uh, there's a valley, the valley of um, Hermes was below. And uh, as the city grew and the needs of the city grew, the farms and the trade routes all in the area, another city kind of sprang up at the base of the, the mountain. So there's a fortress in the old city up top and the big city at the base. Um, the river Pactolus ran through the city. Uh, kind of interesting side note, it was a source of gold dust, and we'll touch back on that again in a minute. Uh, Sardis grew up because it was located on a major trade route from the interior of what, interior of what was then called Asia uh, out, through, out to the coast. Um, so Sardis, in relation to the other seven churches, is inland from uh, modern Izmir, which is uh, what Smyrna is now called. Uh, Smyrna was uh, the second letter, I think. Yeah, Smyrna is the second letter. Um, so it's about 50 miles inland from uh, Smyrna. It's about uh, a 45-minute car drive from uh, the, the um, location of where Philadelphia was. That would be the next letter that we get to. And then uh, Joe last week talked about Thyatira. It's about 30 miles southeast of Thyatira. Um, the seven churches were kind of in a... I'd read they were in a circular trade route, and I looked at our map, and it's not a circle. It's more like a big fish hook. But um, so we're getting towards the back end of the fish hook. Um, <clears throat> as far as the history goes, uh, Sardis was a very old city. The founding of the city is kind of lost in mythology. In fact, um, Herodotus tells us that it was founded by the sons of Hercules. Take that for uh, kind of what you will. Um, uh, it was the capital of the Lydian Empire. Lydia was a, a basically an empire or, or country that took the western half of Turkey, uh, give or take, uh, and it lasted from about 1200 BC to about 550 BC. Uh, you'll have to pardon the, uh, I have a, my, my background is in economics and finance, so you have to pardon the economics geek in me for a second. I thought this was really cool. Uh, Lydia, uh, the country, invented currency, not money. You know, money is delivered, but currency, the actual idea of coinage uh, came from Lydia. They invented uh, kind of a regular standardized uh, coins. Um, they were made uh, using electrum, which is an alloy of gold and silver, which is what they got from the river Pactolus, which ran through the town. So, 
Um, that's just kind of something I thought was cool. Uh, Sardis was uh, conquered by the Persians in the 6th century BC, the Athenians in the 5th century BC, the Persians again somewhere in there, and then Alexander, Great, Alexander the Great in 334 BC, and finally Rome in 189 BC. Well, they were, they were conquered by the Turks and the Muslims later on, but that's kind of after the part we're talking about. Um, the fortress was never taken by military force. It was always, it, the times it got, they, the fortress got conquered, it was by stealth. Uh, in fact, um, Herodotus has a story that one of the guards one, one night uh, dropped his helmet over the side of the wall. And he didn't want to get in trouble, so he had to climb down and get it. So he knew a way you can, cl you can climb down the walls. Well, he climbed down the wall to get his helmet, but the enemy who was surrounding the, the fortress at the time saw where he climbed down, and then they knew that, okay, the guards kind of took their break a little while later, and so no one's guarding the wall. They climbed up where he climbed down, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> all because the guard dropped his helmet. Didn't want to get in trouble with his commander. Um, all right, so in all those different people who conquered him, somewhere in there were, there were the Seleucid Greeks, which were kind of based out of the Syria area. It was uh, one of the remnants of Alexander's empire. You know, they had uh, the Seleucid Greeks, the Ptolemaics, which were in Egypt, and there was a third group, I don't remember them, but I had two out of three, that's okay. Um, the reason that's important is because Sardis is believed to have gained a Jewish community in the third century BC when King Antiochus encouraged about 2,000 Jewish families from various countries, including Babylon, to move to the area of Sardis. So there was an established Jewish community in the area. Eventually, Sardis was uh, abandoned in about 1400 AD. Um, and kind of interesting note, the two cities that are now completely uninhabited belong to the churches, uh, the two churches that were most severely rebuked in uh, Revelation. So Sardis and Laodicea were uh, the ones that got the most uh, um, severe rebuke, and now both of those are completely abandoned. Uh, as far as their religious uh, scene goes, they had uh, many temples at Zeus, Sybil, Heracles, Dionysus, Artemis, all the major Greek gods and even some Phrygian gods from the eastern part of Turkey. Uh, that's Sybil, she was a, a Phrygian goddess. Um, but then they also, again, like I said, they had uh, the Jewish community there. So they had a large synagogue. It was built in the third century AD, so it's after the time of our letter here. But, you know, the, the size of the synagogue, how big it was and how, how well done it was, implies it was a really strong, wealthy Jewish community. And so for that established community to build that synagogue, it means they had been there for a while. So at the time of uh, the, the church in Sardis, you know, they would have had an established Jewish community there as well. In fact, the, um, during the 20th century, there were several archaeological excavations in Sardis, Sardis, and they unearthed perhaps the most impressive synagogue in the Western diaspora. Uh, it had over 80 Greek and seven Hebrew inscriptions as well as uh, numerous mosaic floors. So it was apparently it was a pretty impressive place. Um, after kind of the, the church in Sardis had been established, uh, it became the see of Sardis, so they had a bishop there. Um, it was the bishop of the province of Lydia. It's called a metropolitan bishop, which means it was the bishop of the city that, uh, kind of like the main city in a, in, a, in a region. Kind of think about what we might understand today as a modern archbishop. Um, and that, that sea lasted from uh, 295 AD to 1369, uh, just before the city was finally abandoned. At that time it became what's called a titular sea, which is a kind of dead bishopric, bishopric 
So the church, the church both in Rome and in Constantinople, both recognize that the Eastern Orthodox Church both recognize that as a dead or, or abandoned bishopric. Um, the first bishop was Clement, who was a follower of Paul. They would have had a representative at the Council of Nicaea, which was you know, where we get our Nicene Creed. It was one of the first major early uh, councils of the church trying to figure out what the, doc- the doctrine of the whole church would be. Um, and then to kind of wrap up the history of Sardis, uh, there are currently no churches in the area. There is just a couple mosques. So according to Google Maps anyway. <laughs> um, all right, so let's go ahead and uh, get to the reading here. Um, so <clears throat> it's kind of one of our, it seems to be one of the shorter letters. So uh, we'll just go ahead and read the whole thing straight through to start. Uh, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a Excuse me. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their, soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who is in ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right. So first, let's go ahead and talk about the the kind of the revelation symbol symbolic symbology in the very first part there the seven spirits and the seven stars um, I found a lot of different explanations for the seven spirits and I'll spare you most of them there were four I kind of thought were a bit noteworthy um, so in Isaiah there's a sevenfold ministry and uh, we have the spirit of this is from Isaiah uh, chapter 11 verses 2 3 the spirit of the Lord, <clears throat> the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So, you know, the seven spirits there are spirit of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Um, so that was one interpretation of what the seven spirits might be. Then there's also uh, seven graces, which are from Romans 12, 6 through 8. Those seven graces are uh, insight, helpfulness, instruction, encouragement, generosity, guidance, and compassion. So those were one alternative. This one's kind of my favorite. Seven distinct spiritual beings. Um, there's a lot of versions of this one. Some of them are really kind of out there. The one I felt, had a lot of fun with was from the apocryphal work of Enoch, the first Enoch. Uh, there are seven angels who are watching creation. Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Serechiel, Gabriel, and Fenuel. Take that as you will. <laughs> but I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, just um, then here's this, this one's probably my favorite. I like the first one and the, this last one. The first one was the, the Isaiah, the seven spirits of the Lord. Um, the last one is the sevenfold may be connected with the biblical understanding of the number seven. So seven was considered like a complete number. Um, it was representative of perfection. So the sevenfold spirit of God could be the perfect, the full Holy Spirit. So Jesus is coming, uh, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God. So the words of him who has a full and complete Holy Spirit with him and is part of him. So um, that to me was the one that kind of stuck out the most. 
Seven stars, uh, if we harken back to earlier in Revelation, we have Revelation you know, 1, uh, verse 20. Uh, Jesus actually specifically tells Paul that the uh, seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Now, he doesn't tell them what the angels are, though. <laughs> um, so are the church leaders the angels? Or do stars represent the churches themselves? Don't know. Or do they actually mean angels who are accompanying those churches unseen? Uh, it's kind of not clear. I think if we think back to when we first started this, week one, I think Joe was kind of leaning towards that they actually represent just like the spirit of the churches themselves. And I, I tend to kind of think along the same lines. Uh, what's interesting is the seven stars were actually also used in the opening to the letter in Ephesus. So there might be some link there. All right, so let's kind of get to the main meat of the letter. Kind of the main accusations, as you, were, as you will, are uh, <clears throat> in the second half of the first verse, and then also again in verse 2. That's, uh, I know you work, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's the second half of the first verse. And uh, when I read this, I thought to myself, oh boy, thanks Joe, why can't I get a happy letter? <laughs> but I guess, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll deal with this uh, and we'll get through it. So, uh, you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That's what Jesus is saying to the church in Sardis. Ouch. Um, what did they do to tick Jesus off? Or what did they not do? Or was it how they were doing whatever they were doing? Um, so most of the other letters have something good to say to the church. You know, hey, you're doing this good or that good kind of thing. Um, here, the only good thing, that kind of the, the positive sort of thing, was uh, they have a, a, a good reputation. Um, but really, there's no basis for the reputation. So, you know, kind of... You have a good reputation, but that's all it is. Um, you know, the verdict kind of is, is brief. You know, in name you're alive, but in fact you're dead. Um, it's kind of a tough, uh, tough uh, accusation there. Um, one thing to note about the kind of the passage as a whole, as we start getting into it, is there's no note of opposition or persecution. So a lot of times in the other letters, you know, you're being opposed by these people. You know, be persecuted for this or that. There's no note of that here. Um, you know, there, there was an existing strong Jewish community there, like we already talked about, um, but there's no reference to a synagogue of Satan like there is in the letters to Smyrna and Philadelphia. So you know, it's not called out that they're being persecuted by the existing Jews in the area. Um, and it kind of implies that they were, whatever gospel that they were preaching or not preaching, was very weak and watered down. So, you know, because it was a very inoffensive message that they were teaching, they weren't teaching preaching with a lot of zeal, um, that's, you know, that low spiritual fervor is what's shielding them from persecution. So nobody looked at him and said, oh, these guys are a threat. We need to persecute them. They're kind of like, eh, whatever those guys. Um, so going into verse two, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your works incomplete, or excuse me, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. So a couple things in here. So we end verse one with but you are dead, and start verse 2 with wake up. And to me, reading those in succession, you know, you are dead, but wake up, really made me think of um, a couple of stories from the Gospels. We have uh, Jesus raising Jairus' uh, daughter. Uh, Jairus was a ruler of the synagogue that 
um, came to Jesus and said, just come to my house and you can heal my daughter. Uh, that's in Mark 5, chapter 5, Matthew chapter 9, and I'm sure it's in Luke somewhere as well. And then we also have the healing of Je- uh, Lazarus. I know it's in John 11. I didn't look up where it was in the other Gospels. But in each of those cases, he refers to the person he's going to raise from the dead as being asleep and tells him in some form to wake up. So I just thought that was an interesting connection. I don't have any deeper insight into that, but just the imagery of Jesus having command over the dead, just it was invoked here again for me. Um, then again, this also reminds me the whole, uh, your works are incomplete in the sight of God. Of course, reminds me a little bit of, of James. So in the letter, uh, James's letter, chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them, giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also by faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, If you have faith and I have works, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So don't worry, I'm not saying works alone. I'll get that in a second. But uh, just that reminded me of you know, the, the whole idea that works are, are important as well. Um, Jesus is t- telling the church in Sardis, you know, I have found your works incomplete in the sight of God. Um, so it's also uh, with the works being incomplete, you know, God doesn't want kind of half-hearted works. You know, we have Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, and he said to the said to And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. So, you know, the incomplete works make me think half hearted, you know, just, you know, going through the motions kind of. All right, so those are some other references that kind of relate to this passage. But what does it mean for a church to be alive? If Sardis is dead, what does it mean for a church to be alive? So Sardis appeared alive. They had financial stature, they had influence, and they appeared to be spiritually thriving. But it was obviously just superficial. So their fellow Christians from like the other churches, they could see you know, Sardis from the outside. They, they could see this appearance of being spiritually alive. But um, you know, even Sardis you know, perceived themselves to be spiritually alive. Uh, you know, Jesus tells them to wake up. You know, they, they didn't know that they weren't spiritually alive. Um, but it's like Joe said on Ash Wednesday at uh, Philip R. Cousins, you know, God doesn't just look on the outside. God looks on the inside. Um, I really think that God, you know, would prefer probably quality over quantity. You know, he wants our outreach, our ministry, and all our works to be done in faith, with love, and filled by the Holy Spirit. So like I said earlier, you know, I'm not saying... Works, works, works. Uh, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you get into heaven by, through works. I believe strongly in salvation through faith by grace. But our works should be a natural uh, consequence, the outflowing of love that result from our vibrant faith. So I think that's kind of the crux of what's happening in Sardis is that they were kind of just going through the motions or, or they weren't really feeling it. They weren't you know, living it. Um, but that kind of brought a, a thought to mind, you know, in modern psychology or self-help kind of stuff, a lot of times, you know, people talk about the idea of fake it till you make it. And in large, you know, in large part, I kind of think that's a valid thing. You know, 
people tell you, smile if you're if you're having a bad day and you're unhappy. Smile, and over the course of the day, that actually will work its way into your actual mentality. So, you know, and if you're you know having trouble being nice to people, force yourself to be nice to people, and eventually you'll find that you actually become a nicer person. It, th- those kind of ideas. So, you know, can we? Can we fake it till we make it when it comes to our Christian lives? I don't, I don't know. I kind of think that in a lot of ways, you know, I've, I've heard Joe talk about this several times preaching, where do the things that you need to do. Do the Bible study, do the prayer, and eventually that will start to work within you. And so it's kind of a, a tough balance. You know, Is it just, you know, you have to go from the very beginning as being you know, fully involved, or can you kind of get get going by just engaging in the motions? So, I don't have an answer for that, but this is something I thought about going through this. So, you know, how how is this different from what was going on in Ephesus? So, Ephesus was strong in truth and doctrine, but didn't have love. So, Sardis appeared to be alive, but was actually dead. So, um, you know, Ephesus lost his zeal. They kind of fell from a spiritual height. But Sardis is dead. They, they started something good, but they didn't finish it. So I just saw some parallels there. And again, that Ephesus is what, the other letter that had the uh, seven stars. So I don't know if that's intended to link them together, but it just seems uh, similar. Um, going to steal Joe's thunder a bit, you know, kind of spoilers. But uh, the last de- letter is dedicated to Laodicea, who Jesus calls lukewarm. You know, if Sardis is sleeping, how is that different from being lukewarm? Sardis isn't engaging fully in their, in their works, in their faith. How is that different from being lukewarm? Anybody have thoughts on... It just seemed to me that those two things had a lot of similarity. Uh, I see that kind of as somewhat the church today. Yep. The general church. Mm-hmm. Is there no definitive obedience... Mm-hmm. It's kind of letting the world come in and adopting the ways of the world to change the way mm-hmm. we behave. And right, that's one of the things that in some of the commentaries I read about Sardis. That was actually the the commentary is that Sardis was just kind of uh, you know they 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 weren't persecuted. That's because they weren't taking a, a stance on anything. They were just kind of like being more adaptive to the the community rather than sticking to strictly what was in the scripture or what Jesus had taught. All right. So moving on then to uh, verse 3. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. All right. So the, the idea of remember uh, implies that there had been some time. Uh, so this is not remember like, hey, remember what you had for breakfast yesterday or you know something like that. Remember what your wife told you. To take out the trash or, or whatever. You know, there's an implication here that there, some time has passed. So uh, it's estimated that Sardis probably would receive the gospel somewhere around the mid 50s uh, AD. And Revelation is written, best guess, kind of sometime in the, the mid 90s AD. Um, so it's about what would be considered maybe a generation. So, you know, you said they received and heard what they had received and heard. The first generation, you know, talked about Sardis having incomplete works. The first generation had received the gospel and gotten off to a good start, but maybe the current generation 
was kind of falling flat. They were getting a little complacent. So Jesus calls them to repent, to start back up what they had, had started, to complete the works. Um, now he does say, I come like a thief, is possibly referencing back to the way that Sardis had always been, always been taken by stealth. Remember the guy who dropped the helmet, they climbed up the same route. Um, so uh, maybe a reference back to that, something the people in Sardis would have understood. Uh, but then also it's a kind of indication that Jesus is coming, Jesus is, uh, I don't want to say judgment, but the, the need for them to repent is, is imminent. Jesus is coming back, but just at an unexpected time. Because you never, you don't expect when a thief will come, you don't know when they'll come. They're just going to come eventually. <laughs> um, so uh, in verse 4, kind of we get the last couple of verses here, 4 and 5 here together. Um, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. One thing to highlight in here is, uh, he says in the first part of verse 4, you still have a few names. So the implication there or the, the reference there is that there are specific people in Sardis that he knows are still faithful. So it's not just a reference to a vague, oh, there's some guys out there that are still faithful. It's, I know specifically, he's kind of telling us again, Jesus knows what's in our hearts. He sees beyond that superficial appearance, and he knows you know, whose faith is actually still strong. Um, what this made me think of is it made me think of uh, a small ember of a fire that's almost gone out but can still be brought back to a, a, a you know, strong, roaring blaze. Um, if we think back to verse 2, he has a, the word strengthen there. Strengthen, you know, what is a... Let's put back here. Strengthen, uh, strengthen what remains and is about to die. So, that's obviously, you know, talking about the incomplete works that are in danger of being, you know, not completed. Um... But it all, those, those obviously need strengthening. But then we have these few names left in Sardis that, you know, they need strengthening too. Because if they're just a few amongst many who are the only ones who are still doing what they should be doing, still have a strong faith, then, you know, they feel like maybe they're, you know, if you're one in many, think about maybe at work. I'm the only one really doing what the boss says. I'm the only one adhering to this or that or, or the only one working hard. We all, all had those moments, I'm sure. You know, and you feel motivated to, to not do more, but you feel motivated to do less. You know, dismotivated, I guess, if that's even a word. Unmotivated. Um, so those, those few names in Sardis, they're needed strengthening as well. Um, then uh, he goes on to talk about you know, the, the white garments, um, the, the white, uh, they walk in white. Uh, it's obviously a uh, symbol of purity. They have been uh, washed clean from their sin. Um, and then uh, one thing I found interesting is that when he talks about, uh, I will never blot his name out of the, the book of life, uh, apparently both the Jews and the Romans had kind of similar practices at the time where uh, they would remove the names of criminals or people who were heretics or outside the faith. They would remove their names from either like public records or family genealogies, kind of as part of like the ostracization or the 
part, it was part of what it meant to be a criminal was your name was removed from the record. So in this, Jesus is saying, I will never remove your name from the most important record. Um, and then, you know, we have, uh, I confess, I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. So, uh, you know, the faithful will receive their salvation. The last verse is uh, same as in all the, the letters. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I kind of almost started with this first verse because I thought it was kind of interesting. I know Joe's touched on this a little bit. But, you know, each church received the entire book of Revelation. So this, each, each time it you know, went out to the seven churches, it didn't go out with just, oh, well, let's just put Sardis' letter in front of the book, and then let's put Smyrna's letter and, and so forth. Everybody could read each other's mail. So you got, everybody got each other's dirty laundry. So that led me to think, is this um, because the, you know, there's obviously an element of specificity to each church, but are these also, uh, are these also, sorry, I'm getting distracted my pants. Um, are these also uh, general references to, uh, to um, that each church should follow or, or think about? So you know, there, there's, a, there's an element of uh, general applicability to all the, all the different churches. Each one needs to guard against these different things. Um, so for modern readers, the way I would kind of approach that is if the shoe fits, wear it. So you know, each of these letters, if you look at it go, oh, wow, that's definitely not me. Okay, great. Think about it real hard. Make sure you're right. Move on to the next one. If you think real letter, go, ooh, ouch. You know, if that's your reaction, maybe <laughs> the shoe fits. So, so you might need to, to wear that one. Um, you know, a couple questions for us to think about kind of as a, as a church or as, even as individuals. Um, do we finish what we start in regards to our spiritual journey, our relationship with Christ? Is it something, you know, that we are following through on and, and really being active in? Do we, or do we get a good start? Of, I'm going to, you know, do a daily devotion or, or read a chapter of a you know, New Testament book every day. Do it for two weeks and... Do we just do the things for Lent, and by the time Easter rolls around, we're doing it half the time, or after Easter, we don't do it at all? You know, those kind of questions you kind of need to ask yourselves. And then, as a church as a whole, and again, also as individuals, you know, we're more about image than substance. You know, recently, Joe's been, uh, he had outlined this vision at the, um, at the meeting back in, I think, January, about us being a beacon for uh, Christian vitality in Mandarin and to the diocese. So, you know, kind of what I would encourage us is to really think about what it means to be to be a beacon, not just look like a beacon. You know, so we can look really good, and we can maybe make that challenge be about appearance, or we can make it be about substance. Now, obviously, the substance lasts a lot longer. It's going to be more pleasing to God. You know. Um, but you know, to actually live it, I think is you know what this letter is encouraging. Then uh, uh, in the last uh, section there, we talked about the the few members. Now, do we have just a few, here our Savior? Do we have just a few names of members who have not soiled soiled their garments? Now, I hope honestly, I hope no one soiled their garments. <laughs> I, I hope this hasn't been so bad that anybody know. But you know, the obviously the the metaphorical soiling of the garments, the you know, um, 
you know, obviously references to, to sin or to, to letting outside influences into your faith. Kind of like what Katie was saying was you know, letting the, the influences of the world taint your, your faith. Um, again, that was like one of the criticisms of Sardis. Um, you know, I think uh, we always are a little bit in danger of falling into the, the trap that ensnared Sardis. If we merely go through the motions of practicing our faith without really feeding our spirit, and to avoid becoming the living, the living dead, um, you know, appearing alive but being spiritually dead, we need to engage our faith through Bible study, prayer, and fellowship like we're doing today. So I think those are kind of the important points. Questions or thoughts? When you were talking in the beginning about the living dead, <clears throat> I was thinking of at one time in our life we're all like that. Because we're on an automatic robot things of what we do from when we get up in the morning Absolutely. to when we get up at night. And that's why sometimes a lot of people can't recognize people that are in true depression because they're outwardly, they're functioning to the best of their ability, but inside they're dying, the same thing. Absolutely. You put a big facade out and people don't really realize, even people that you're very close to. Mm -hmm. So, and it could be, you know, grief, or it could be something bad inside, or it could be something wonderful that's happened to you, and that's the whole thing that fills your life, and you don't look at other things. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things. As far as works, when I learned that, you know, they're sinning, you're forgiven for it, but that doesn't mean you do it all the time, you know? And you can do things, like you said, go to church and do everything and be in a robot mode and do it, but you're not doing it heartfelt. Yeah, have you you're ever... You're not doing it because you, because you have to, because you feel guilty about it, because you should be doing it, because at one point in your life you realize you can't save everybody and you can't do everything. God's given you certain gifts, and I have different <laughs> gifts than everybody else, if you use your gifts, even in a small little way, to the best of your ability, that's better than trying to do all these things that you're not really good at or mm -hmm. not accomplishing anything. And you put too many things in your bucket and you can't do them. That's the first mistake I found for myself that, I sure. that I'm learning. And I'm not a real techie person, but if you think of it as yourself as your cell phone, at the end of the day, if you don't charge it, it's going to be zero the next day. So don't, if you don't recharge yourself, you know, and I'm learning that through the DOK that I'm doing through here, mm -hmm. 10 minutes. Spend 10 minutes to read a Bible verse. You don't understand it. It's okay. Go back and read it again. The next one, read at the bottom. Spend 10 minutes. Give yourself that 10 minutes to recharge yourself. And then during the day, just a few minutes, if something bad happens to you, just say, okay, you know, what am I supposed to be learning from this and try and pick one good thing out of it. I find that's helped me along the past couple months. And then the other thing you said about um, smiling, it's true. Because not only physically, mentally, and emotionally, your body releases different kinds of hormones and enzymes in your system. That's why after you have a good cry, you feel good, because your body has changed. The serotonin levels are different. And if you start smiling like that, it becomes a habit. And it's, you start seeing the positive in what is bad. And that is like an art you have to practice, because it just doesn't happen. Yeah. You, know, you have to look at it. Because a period of time, you'll smile and you realize, you look at pictures of yourself, that's not a genuine smile. And I, <laughs> I mean, you yeah. can tell that you're not really happy about something. Yeah. You know, your face tells it before your mouth even comes out. And Absolutely. Out. But thank you, because I did learn a lot from that. Good deal, good deal. So, I mean, yeah, I have to agree a lot with, you know, what you were saying. You know, how many times have any of us got to the end of, end of a church service and we're singing the last hymn, we're getting ready to walk out, we're like, 
I couldn't tell you what any of the readings were or what the sermon was about. I just know we did the same liturgy we did last week and six weeks before that and 120 weeks before that. I don't remember. Because we get in the, the habit and the, we do it by rote. So you know, having that mindfulness of, of what's going on, not be getting into that robot mode, you know, I think is, is very important. And Katie? Yeah, Dr. Stanley this morning uh, was kind of talking along the same lines, and he said the best checks that Christmas that Christians can do in their lives to see how close they are walking with God is to to every so often compare how much time is TV and phone, and how much time is prayer and study and talking with God. And Ouch. It's really big. You know, you've got to. Yeah. Gotta get over here a little bit more. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, that I can I can I can understand that. <laughs> I'm sure as many of us can. Um got about five more. Um, one thing and this goes along with the road, it's something I tell <clears throat> in, in my confirmation classes a lot. Those of us that you know, for sort of cradles, we've got most of the service memorized, and we stand there. <clears throat> we don't need the prayer book. We just recite the prayers <clears throat> as we go along, and that is a lot rough. Talking about when the service is over, it really didn't mean that much because you just went through it in a haze, of reciting from memory. And I tell the kids, even if you memorize this stuff, you need to just read it from time to time read it instead of just reciting it so it means more yeah i make a i make a point of that personally i mean i've been i've been coming to episcopal churches long enough i mean i've been a member here like going on about two years and uh it's i don't have that memorized quite as much but i grew up from before i can remember till i was early 20s very regularly going to the same lutheran church and even to this day, I can still recite a large portion of that liturgy. And so I make a point of reading along with it and trying to, especially when we get to some of the, um, some of the colics. I really like the, the I think it's a, the one where, um, I'm, now I'm blanking on it, God, where God knows, uh, God knows our hearts and um the one where God knows what we're, you know, the yeah. God knows what we're thinking and feeling. I can't think of the exact words. Um, you know, I really try and focus on reading that along with it, and a lot of those to, you know, the confessions for sins. You know, I, I really try and focus on reading those along, so that I can make sure that I'm bringing those things to mind. Same with the the uh, the readings, the gospel readings, and the the lessons. You know, reading those along, so I'm not just hearing the words are coming and planning my grocery list where I go to the grocery store after, you know, really helps me focus not just to hear it, but to also read it. Then my mind's focused on what's going on. Yeah, along that line, I was uh, very blessed early in Lutheran Sunday school that one of my teachers said, um, every song we sing is a prayer. Yeah. So don't just sing it when you know it real well. But think of the word, every time you sing it, think of the words you're singing. Mm -hmm. Not so much the music, but the words. Um, with our Nicene Creed and Apostles' Creed, every time you say it, 
think of the words and believe God when you say them. And it does make a big difference. Yeah, I think, you know, just that happens to be what works for me. But yeah, again, the reading along with it rather than just reciting it. Because if I'm reciting it from, from memory, I'm not thinking, I'm not, my mind's not as engaged on it. So, all right. Any other questions, any thoughts on how, as a, as a church as a whole, we stack up against artists? Is this something we need to take heed of? Or is this something that we think, oh, we're, we're in pretty good shape? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that would be my, uh, my assessment as well, I think. You know, just use this as a caution, as a, hey, so keep an eye on, you know, so don't go I, down this if path. We're, if we're not there, make sure we don't get there. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, like Father Joe said, just having a conscious effort on what around us is needed mm -hmm. and what you can do. You right. Know, that type of, like you said, mercy to keep awake. Absolutely. And every yeah. letter he gives us an out. Yes. Right. Those are victorious. Them. Mm -hmm. Yep, and this one it is. Yep, and this one it is. Losing my place here. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That's kind of, you know, goes back to what Joe says where. Jesus puts his name on our report, or puts our name on his report card, so we credit for his straight A's because our list of F's and incompletes ain't gonna cut it. So. I think that's like a reacclimation for me that no matter what I do, God sees everything, and He knows that even if I feel He doesn't know, He knows what I'm doing. And there He's saying that you know, I Absolutely. know what you're doing, and you're gonna be rewarded for that. Absolutely. All right, so. Let's make sure that we uh, aren't just being superficial, that we are actually living and feeling what we're doing, our, you know, being active participants in our community, in our church, in our faith, and uh, not being superficial. And uh, I'm going to turn off the recording now and hope that Joe gives me an A. <laughs>